You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle. History with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Hey there, Pithy listeners, and welcome to Season 4, Crusading Queens. This season, we are going to investigate the many moving parts that led to the first, the second, the third, and all the way to the Eighth Crusade. Not to worry, though, we are going to hit the highlights and gloss over the drudgery. And thank God for it. (laughs) After we establish the basics, we are going to examine the Crusades through a female lens, highlighting the women who took on this overwhelming challenge. We'll learn the who, the what, when, where, and then finally ask the why. Why did these women, some queens, some whores, some nuns, some peasants, why did they join the Crusade? What were they crusading for? But first, housekeeping! Erica? Cleaning house. Just doing what I do best. She actually does have some excellent cleaning tips. I am actually a very good housekeeper. I know you are. I've asked you for help because I'm not. The baseboards. We love a good baseboard clean. (laughs) Anyway, we need you to get down on the baseboards and give us a like, a subscribe, a review if you can, a five-star rating. These are all free ways that you can help us out, keep us going, and keep us charting. Second, if you would like to make a monetary donation, some pretty cool perks happen on Patreon and buy me a coffee. And what do these donations do, Erica? Girl, they help us out. Help us get books for resources, fabulous background music, more hours on the computer, bringing you the pithiest content around. All right. Welcome to the darkness. In the Western world, the era of 400 to 1000 AD-ish, just under 100 years before the First Crusade, is the Dark Ages. This term has been widely abandoned by historians due to perceived unacceptable value judgments that it implies. But as there are no survivors to be offended, and I honestly think the term is pretty accurate, I'm gonna go ahead with confidence into the darkness. That is not the Sorry. darkness. Well, that is a darkness. Uh, darkness. <laughs> it's a different darkness. It's the darkness Most, of parents. <laughs> Most of what we know about Western Christendom during this time period, frankly, sucks. It was a depressing and disorganized melange of incessant warfare, corruption, and lawlessness. And that was a pretty high fall from the glorious days of the Roman Empire. Wow, not dramatic at all. It was! You're not not wrong! wrong. (laughs) That's so dramatic, (laughs) I love it! Literacy was scorned. Even Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor and arguably the greatest of all Western medieval rulers, was himself illiterate. One pope of the period, who also couldn't read, proclaimed himself, quote, above grammar. No one is above grammar. Well, see, but here's our problem. Our little catchphrase, what are they fighting for? What are they crusading for? It ends with a preposition. It does. And that really bothers me. It's like a nails on the chalkboard every time. But am I going to be pretentious and say, for what were they fighting? 
Yeah, that just sounds stupid. No. So maybe we are also above grammar, but the Pope... Wait, wait. Come on. If the Pope is not above grammar, and we are above grammar, are we above the Pope in that case? Well, no, because the Pope is above grammar, and oh. we are above grammar, so we're Got on it. par with the Dark Ages Pope. I feel good about that statement. I feel good about that, yeah. Europe, known as Western Christendom at this time historically, had been in trouble since the fall of Rome in the 5th century. And you know the phrase, it's all downhill from here. The Roman Empire had reached the highest pinnacles of artistic and intellectual achievements, and the age that followed, the darkness, accomplished none. Instead, they somehow lost the basics, like how to read, along with essentials such as bricklaying. I mean, if you think about it, with the exception of those glorious cathedrals that took centuries, like 400 years to complete, no stone buildings were raised during these dark ages. It was wood, mud, and straw. So, what happened? Well, first, it was a gradual collapse. It did not just happen overnight. Famines and plagues, which eventually culminated in the Black Death of the 14th century. Mm. These terrible pandemics thinned and eventually halved the populations of Europe. And after the plague comes rickets for those lucky enough to survive the first round. Exciting. Dramatic climate change brought storms, floods, and other major disasters, which absolutely paralyzed entire communities. Civil wars and external invasions further dissected what had once been a singular enormous empire. Eventually, cities and towns shrank or disappeared altogether. Without established city centers and centralized power, long-distance trade across the Euro-Asia Peninsula halted. Coined money became incredibly scarce, except in Italy. Italy was a little bit different. It still had a thriving trade with Byzantium and the Islamic world in Genoa and Venice. But the crusading people, the Franks, what is now France and Germany and Austria and that area, yeah, their life settled into tiny, insular, removed communities. It wasn't a pleasant time. Homicides were twice as frequent as deaths by accident. What? And to clarify, people died in accidents a lot. What? Yet only one in 100 murderers were ever brought to justice. Oh my I know. gosh. Abduction for ransom was a legitimate livelihood for a landless knight. And if you tried to escape your captor, you would find yourself in a vast, menacing forest infested by wild boars, enormous bears, and wolves. Oh my. And just so you know, these weren't your average wolves. These suckers, which are now extinct, were massive. Like Game of Thrones, dire wolves type situation. Oh my god. The level of everyday violence was absolutely shocking. Despite this, Every one of them was a devout Christian. And that is a very difficult hypocrisy to overlook. The church now defined European frontiers. Missionaries spilled out attempting to teach pagans the wholesome lessons of Jesus, but it was often the sword that stirred conversions. Charlemagne, upon conquering the Saxon rebels, gave his captives a choice, baptism or death. And to prove his point, he beheaded 4,500 of them before breakfast. Whoa, <laughs> that's a big number. Yeah. And even if you were Christian, you had to be the right kind of believer. A great many people died solely for their interpretation 
of the religious texts. That they couldn't read? Right. So the interpretation that they're probably also couldn't read. <laughs> Priest told them about. <laughs> More than 80,000 people embarked on the first crusade in 1095. And while in the following episodes, we will hear a lot about the men and women with illustrious titles and overflowing coffers, these nobles from emperors, kings, and popes down to dukes, lords, and ugh, mere knights. These greats made up less than 1% of Western Christendom's population. They were slightly more of the crusading Christian force, roughly about 20%. But I think it's important when discussing the Crusades to have a clear picture of the average Joe and Jane who thought abandoning their entire lives to travel 2,000 plus miles across two continents was a good idea. Or at least they thought it was a better option than life as they knew it. So today, I'm going to ignore the fancy names and their fancy cod pieces, and instead talk about the dude working with the wooden spade and his broodmare of a wife whose lives revolved around the agricultural seasons and high holidays, not the political winds and changing tides. So, without further ado, let's meet Will's brother. Wait. Who's Will? I thought we were talking about <laughs> Joe and Jane and the broodmares. Well, the <laughs> Erica looks so offended. First of all, we, we've we moved on from Joe and Jane. We're going to go with Will's brother. You're right. I should have made that clear. Well, it's that? just an example. Will's brother. It was pretty common to go by such and such as relative as okay. your legitimate name. Surnames weren't a thing for peasants. The sense of identity and of personal importance and agency were nearly non-existent. This life was nothing more than a waiting room for heaven or hell. I guess that does make sense with surnames because you've got, yeah. like, Godwin's son, Richard's son. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. I see where this is going. So everybody knows Will, and then you've got Will's brother. Huh. And his wife, Sal's second daughter. Who the f*** is Sal? It, evidently someone more important than his second daughter. Together, they live with their three surviving children out of eight births in a rambling edifice of thatch, wattles, mud, and dirty wood that smells of dung. Because there's a towering heap of it in what we would generously call their front yard. It was a big house, or at least bigger than you might expect of a peasant, but it didn't just house Will's brother's family. And try saying that five times fast. Beneath its sagging roof was a pig pen, a hen house, a cattle shed, a corn crib, straw and hay storage, and of course the family's room, singular, the walls and ceiling of which were coated in soot. The floors were made of clay and then scattered with rushes from a nearby marsh. These rushes housed creepy crawlies that happily moved from the marsh into the family's dwelling. It might be 20 years or more before that infested floor of straw and insects will be replaced. In the meantime, anything that falls to the ground stays there. Spit, vomit, dog urine, beer, fish heads, the aftermath of childbirth, all of it stayed on the floor, feeding the parasitic insects that lived amongst Will's brother's family. You know, the pores on your feet are the largest on the body. Ew, no, is that true? Yeah, no that's... they all died early. It's also one of the reasons that in old school folk medicine, things my grandmother would do, you put Vicks on your feet or you put onions in your oh. socks to pull out the toxins, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, no wonder <laughs> it smelled so bad. Oh my God. <laughs> so if you thought that the dung heap outside was odiferous... 
Clearly the inside was worse. The centerpiece of a family's home was the bed, as big as they could make it, stacked high with straw pallets and seething with yet more vermin. Delightful. Delightful. This wasn't a grand California king for mom and dad. It had to be big because everyone slept there, regardless of age or gender. Parents, grandparents, children, often hens and pigs as well. And if a couple wished to enjoy a private moment of intimacy, too bad. Don't get me wrong, you could do it. And they clearly did. But the rest of the family was aware of every single movement. In the late evenings of summer, they might even watch. Sometimes the bed housed strangers as well. Hospitality required that any stranger who sought shelter should be invited to join on the familial mattress. This doesn't mean that they were invited to do anything more, but it also doesn't mean that it didn't happen, especially as the rules of hospitality applied even if the head of the household was away, say, fighting a crusade. And should that crusader be lucky enough to return years later, should he manage to find his way home to a random hut in a random place, the name of which he likely did not know, Should he come home to find a newborn who looked nothing like him, his wife might reply that, while sleeping, she had been penetrated by an incubus. (sighs) This just is a lot. (laughs) This is a lot. Theologians of the time actually confirmed that such monsters existed and that it was their demonic mission to impregnate lonely women lost in slumber. Interestingly, this was the same explanation offered for wet dreams of young boys. Tongues might wag, but as no one wanted the embarrassment of being a cuckold, most men just went with the penetrating incubus theory. Some unmarried pregnant women tried this trick as well, but in their case, the incubus tact rarely worked. For some reason, the incubi only wanted married ladies. And how could this demon not want a virgin? I don't know. This is the antithesis of everything they've taught us in horror movies. We've been told. I've got to turn the chair around. This is how. She's having trouble. I've got to turn the chair around so I can lean against it to get through this. Settled in for story time. (laughs) When times were good and food was plentiful, most peasants ate two meals a day a 10 a.m. breakfast, and a 5 p.m. supper. This allowed them to dine in the light because candles were an extravagance. You know, two meals a day does not actually sound bad. It doesn't. This is when times were good, Mm-mm. to be clear. But how, how was the actual food, though? I'm assuming it's not good. Well, it was soup. Mm. And soup, and, and then more soup. Cabbage soup, watercress soup, cheese soup, fish soup, dried pea and bacon, water soup. Bacon water, not bacon. You get the idea. There was a lot of soup. Meat was a rare delicacy, and really the only consistent way to get meat was by hunting. And then everything was washed down with alcohol. In Italy and France, they had wine. Mm -hmm. In Germany and England, beer. Why alcohol? Well, because the water was disgusting. It was contaminated with feces and other fun stuff, which meant alcohol was necessary to sanitize it. So were they just walking around wasted? all the time. Yeah, I think so. I think you've pretty much nailed that. Nice. They drank quite a bit of alcohol every day. And people at the time were also very small compared to today. The average height for a man was about 5'2". 
weighing roughly 135 pounds, my God, while that's women my dream. were generally lighter <laughs> and shorter. <laughs> There were a few, and I think we'll encounter some during our crusading, where we'll see some six-foot-tall men, and and you do hear about that from time to time. There are a number of famous rulers that were very, very tall. Edward IV. But they were, like, giants. Henry II. It's it's hard to explain. Like, they would have looked like an NBA basketball player compared to the average person. Hot. Yeah. I mean, you can see why they were followed. They're literally easy to see. Oh, look, the tall people. I'll go to them. As you may have expected, life was shorter than today. If you survived childhood, and that is a big if, you would have been happy to live to 30 years of age. If you made it to 45, you were equivalent in looks, health, and luck to an octogenarian today. But that was for men. Women had an even shorter life expectancy. Just 24. Why? Oh, it's childbirth. Yeah. Easy peasy. On a girl's wedding day, her mother would traditionally present her with a fine piece of cloth with which to make a frock. But the expectation was that six to seven years later, it would act as her shroud. Talk about rewearing your wedding dress. (laughs) Then you're buried in it forever. I don't know that a strapless wedding dress, when I'm hopefully in my 80s, will look great. Anyway. What? What I have just described to you was the life of a prosperous peasant. Many, most, of their neighbors would not have been as lucky as Will's brother and his family, to include Sal's second daughter. Typically, for every three years of harvest, there was one of famine. And as you'd expect, the famine years were brutal. Often peasants were forced to sell everything they owned, including their pitifully inadequate clothing. So yes, that left them in the nude in all seasons. In the worst times, people resorted to eating bark, roots, grass, even clay, and cannibalism was not unknown. There are tales of gallows being torn down, bodies still hanging upon them as starving peasants rushed to eat the warm, raw flesh. What did I I say? I think I said, welcome to the darkness. Yeah, this is, Mm -hmm. that's that's aptly described. Mm -hmm. But here's the truly amazing thing. This horrible, depressing, deadly life that I have just described was 100 times better than just a century or two before. Beginning around 850 AD, economic and social changes bolstered Europe's prosperity and paved the way for the Crusades. Without the drastic improvements in farming techniques, the Dark Ages would never have blossomed into that lovely world I just relayed, and would never have allowed for the manpower, logistics, or frankly energy to mount a holy war. So, real quick, let's see what they finally did right. It had to be something significant. (laughs) By 1095, when Pope Urban II preached his call for crusade, which we're going to talk about in just a couple of days, European agriculture had grown leaps and bounds. A leftover of the Roman concept of the villa, the medieval manor was the building block of society. A lord or a landowner ruled over his domain, and the crops produced fed his various groupies. Of course, he didn't work the land himself. Of course not. That was left to the serfs, 
And to clarify, serfs were not slaves. And medieval Europe is very specific about this to make themselves feel better. Slaves were usually captured and then sent to foreign ports like chattel, whereas serfs are defined as those owing labor to their lord. These landless peasants worked the lord's land. They plowed, harvested, and transported crops to ensure the manor could sustain itself. And then they worked their own farms, which fed themselves and their families. In addition, they owed that lord rent often paid in kind with crops or animals from their meager portions. Previously, the agricultural tools of the serfs were picks, forks, spades, and scythes. Without a lot of iron, these scant tools were often made of wood. I can't tell you how ineffective a wood fork for farming would be. Just think about when you go to the really hooty too fancy eco places and they give you the wood fork. How miserable is that? Just eating your couscous. It's awful. I hate those. I recognize that as a first world problem. It is, yeah. But think about tilling the land with that tool. Good point. Not fun. While they might have had animals to help them with the harvest, technology around 850 hadn't developed enough to make them all that useful. No, they were still using an ox. Yeah, and they didn't have a way to connect them. So they only had one ox, Mm -mm. which is far less useful than two. Finally, productivity began to improve. It took almost 400 years, but medieval Europe pulled itself out of the Dark Ages by refining the chemistry of iron production. More iron meant better, stronger tools, including those that helped harness horsepower, if you know what I mean. Around the year 900 AD, we finally get the horse collar, harness, and stirrup so that man could use horse to help with the workload. Organization too got better. They switched from a two-field to a three-field system, which increased acreage by one-third and decreased the peasants' workload by one-ninth. I know, right? One (laughs) night. But it was a big difference. They domesticated better, hardier grains. They became experts in livestock breeding. And with increased production, villages expanded. Peasants consolidated into towns rather than living far apart on their own minuscule farms. Population density led to fairs, markets, and trade, something that had been sorely missing for hundreds of years. By 1095, Europe had recovered economically. Population numbers were back to Roman levels. It only took them 500 years. And these populations were generally being fed. And not by dead bodies. Good point. Industries were also expanding. More iron called for mining. Timber and textiles, too, exploded, along with shipbuilding, which developed better, faster, more efficient construction techniques. A revival of regional trade eventually gave way to international trade, which connected Western Europe to the Mediterranean ports and through those to Byzantium and the Far East. For the first time in centuries, coined money came back to Western Europe and trade routes now linked areas previously considered like a remote wilderness to the wider quote-unquote civilized world. It may seem dark to modern eyes or ears, But the year 1095 was worlds away from the year 895. 200 years of improvements meant that the miserable yet fed, brutal yet devout population of Western Christendom finally had the population, the technology, and the worldview that made the Crusades possible. 
And next time, we'll look at those lords and knights and their fancy cod pieces who responded to the Pope's call for holy war and see how they prepared themselves and their serfs for battle. And with that, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are pithily yours. This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!